0: Right, so if you have a Bible, we are in John 7. Uh, We're going to be in John 7 this morning. Uh, But to get us going, I want you to think with me. When was the last time in your life you were really thirsty? Okay, when was the last time in your life you were really thirsty? Now, when I ask that, I don't mean, you know, you had a little too much coffee or you had too much soda and you're like, some water. Not that kind of thirsty. I mean, really thirsty. Like dehydrated, thirsty, parched, thirsty, Gatorade commercial, thirsty, Lake Powell. Powell. Okay, perfect. (laughs) That's what I'm talking about. Can you think of a time? Uh, The time that comes to mind for me, uh, Karis and I were newly, we didn't have kids yet, and we went camping in Yosemite. We're going to hike Half Dome, and it's about an eight-mile hike from the floor up to the top, and so we're going to do the whole thing in a day, and we planned it out well. Brought plenty of water. We had plenty of water going up. Had a great time. Gorgeous July hot, but so pretty. We had lunch on top. But on our way down, we apparently did not plan it perfectly because on the way down, we ran out of water. And we got to this moment on our hike where we had a choice to make. We were hiking along like, okay, it's, it's real hot. And we can go, you know, a quarter mile off trail down to Little Yosemite Valley to fill up our bottles there. Or we can go a mile and a half, keep going on the trail. And we'll get to Nevada Falls and we can pump water and, and fill up our water bottles and it'll be good. And we kind of decide, well, it's going to be an extra, you know, three quarters of a mile. This is, we're talking eight, 19 miles on the day. Let's, let's keep going. Let's, no, no sidetracking. So we said, let's press on. And, and that was a huge mistake. A huge mistake. We got so so thirsty, you know, you're walking along, and I I felt like, you know, I stopped sweating because I ran out of water, and my body's not producing any sweat anymore, I felt like my brain was all dry, and I couldn't think straight, and my mouth, "Ah, you know, you're just like drinking of water, and it feels like there's sand in your mouth, uh, because you're so cotton-mouthed, and we're just trying to push, 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 push to get there, Well, eventually we got there, we filled up our water bottles and just like laid on the ground and and tried to soak it up. But if you've ever been really dehydrated like that, you've ever been really thirsty, you know it's kind of a surreal experience. I mean, the the craving obviously is like focused on your mouth, but you almost feel like if you could jump into a lake, your body would just absorb the water by osmosis, like a frog or something, uh, because you're so thirsty. Now, Seen a lot of you, even as I tell that story, kind of crack your water bottle and start taking sips. Because just thinking about being thirsty can make us thirsty. Uh, the, the craving for water—it's it's, it's profound. Um, well, this morning we're talking about thirst. We're talking about thirst and flowing water. Uh, and so I hope you brought a water bottle. It's just talking about—it's it. going to make you thirsty. But uh, that's where we are this morning. Now I bring it up because Jesus is going to proclaim in our text. If anyone is thirsty come to me and so I want you to, to have that in your mind when we get there but with that if you have a Bible we're in John 7 John 7 I'm gonna read for us and I invite you you know if you brought your Bible maybe just stick your finger in it and just listen to the story kids listen it's such a good just storytelling uh, and then we'll dive in and pull it apart in just a second so here's John chapter 7 uh, starting with verse 1 after this Jesus went about in Galilee he would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go, go to Judea. That You also see that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much about him among the people while some said he's he's a good man others said no he's leading the people astray yet for fear of the jews no one spoke openly of him about the middle of the feast jesus went up into the temple and began teaching the jews therefore marveled saying how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied so jesus answered them my teaching is you have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it was from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcised a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment." I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the Spirit said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. Then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing? And learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. And, church, this is the word of the Lord. Let's dive into it. All right. Uh, Kids, if you're here and you've got hands, let me see your hands. Kids, okay, now show me six. Okay, six. We got six words this morning. Six words that are going to get us into this passage. Help us understand it. If you want, you can count along with me. We have six words. They are these. Uh, if let's Turn it on. Go. There are these six words. Ready? Feast, fear, muttering, marveling, wear water. Okay? Feast, fear, muttering, marveling, wear water. Hope you're excited. Okay? These six words Jesus offers us. In these words, he offers us all, the all-satisfying and overflowing presence of God. He got it. Boom. All right, let's dive into the first one, feast. We're just going to get cracking. John chapter 7 and 9 all take place at the feast of tabernacles or the feast of booths, Okay, which is held in late September or early October. Now, Nicole mentioned, we forget so easily. So the Jewish people had these feasts to force themselves to remember. They held these big parties year after year after year to remember what God had done. And so every late September, early October, they would have this giant church campout, a national church campout, where they would go and build these little booths, these, these tents outside of Jerusalem, and they would stay and live in them for a week. Now, this feast is one of the three most important annuals, including Passover and Pentecost. And this one in particular starts five days after the Day of Atonement. Now, historians agree this was the most popular of the feasts. The people loved this one the most. It was like a giant liturgical party. They celebrated nonstop the miraculous provision that Yahweh made for his people as they wandered through the desert after the Exodus. They're staying in tents to remind themselves of the 40 years they lived in tents in the desert. Now, I sometimes, I don't know about you, I sometimes think of Judaism kind of as like this cold, rigid, you know, following religion, when actually, I, I probably just get that picture from the picture of the Pharisees we get in the Gospels. the Jews loved to party. They had these week-long festivals and parties, and this one was so popular, by the time of Jesus, they had to add an extra day just so people could have a day of rest after the party. It was that popular. Now, uh, the timing of the feast is important to the rituals of the feast. It happens in the fall after a long, hot summer. So the land is dry, okay? It's dry, it's hot. And every morning they have a water ceremony to remember God giving them water in the desert. And so so it went like this. During the daily water ceremony, a group of priests would would start up at the temple and walk down the steps all the way down to the pool of Siloam, which is fed by the spring of Gihon, or I don't know how you pronounce that, that spring. Um, And the Take this golden pitcher and he would fill it up and then they would march back up the stairs all the way back up to the temple mount the whole time this choir is following them and singing behind them you know all these these songs to god when the priest would get back to the temple he'd go up climb up on the altar and then pour out this golden pitcher pour the water all over the ground uh, the whole time the people are singing and praising god they were looking back to when god provided water for israel when they were in the desert and so they. Of Psalm 78, which says, He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink and caused waters to flow like rivers. Maybe you remember Moses striking the rock and in the middle of the desert, boom, water provided for, for the multitude of people. So they looked back and they said, God, you provided in the past, you provided water in the past, now do it again. They were praying for rain. But the ceremony also looked forward. To the day when Messiah would come and God would set everything right. And so there's prophecies like from Zechariah 14, which say on that day, talking about the day of Messiah, on that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. It shall continue in summer as in winter. Now these visions that the prophets had about this coming day when God would provide his living water, it often envisioned this happening from the temple, from the center of of the nation, from the center of their worship from God's very presence, water would flow. And so Ezekiel 47 says, Behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. The water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. So Jesus is there. They're at the altar or they're watching water being poured out, and maybe they're thinking about Ezekiel, thinking, yeah, a day is coming when God is just going to bless the world from here. Water will flow. Water in the desert. See, this was a a, a prayer, not just for rain, but also for God's miraculous provision, his blessing, his his life-giving water to flow to the world when Messiah comes. Now, hold on to that, because that's the background of Jesus' teaching on living water. Now, Jesus goes to this feast, goes to this feast, but hanging over the party, hanging over the celebration is is actually the threat of death. You may have heard it in the passage, which brings us to our second word, fear, okay? From the feast to fear. Verse 13 says the people wouldn't speak openly about Jesus for fear of the Jews. Why were they afraid? in our passage we're told that the Jewish authorities were seeking to arrest and kill Jesus. Now let me be clear. Jesus is not afraid. The passage, nowhere in the passage is, is, is Jesus afraid. He is resolutely following God's will. And in fact, he goes to town and explicitly angers the authorities with his teaching. He doesn't shy away from the hard stuff. But the fear Of the crowds, it highlights the tenor of the relationship between Jesus and the Jewish authorities. It was tense. Think about it. Chapter seven begins with Jesus' brothers; they're taunting him. They suggest that he says, "They say, go into town, do your wonders there, gather a big, start performing miracles like you have been, and the result will be will be a massive following. People wanting to make you king. Go do it in public." Well, Jesus, instead, he slips into town. And instead of displaying his power, he makes himself known by teaching in a way that it was meant to offend the authorities. He's not trying to ride a wave of popularity to a throne. he's going to provoke until he's coronated with a crown of thorns. But the people, they do fear the authorities, and so they talk and they discuss and they mutter under their breaths, which is our next word: Feast, fear, muttering. Okay, muttering. What is muttering? It's 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 talking under your breath. It's discussing in hushed tones. You can almost hear the sound of the word in the word. You know, mutter, 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 mutter. You know, you do it on, on the side. Kids, this is what you do when you're in the back seat and you're trying to talk to each other without mom and dad hearing you. You're kind of whispering in hushed tones, trying to scheme how you get a lollipop. You know, that is muttering. Now, the people, they fear the Jews. So we're in verse 12 and verse 32 that because that, they're they're muttering. Verse 13 says they won't speak openly. So it comes as as quite a shock to them, a surprise in verse 26 that Jesus is speaking openly. They're muttering, whispering, and Jesus is proclaiming. Now let's look at specifically what they mutter. Verse 12, they say, some said he's a good man, others, no, he's leading the people astray. Or verse 40, Said, this is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ supposed to come from Galilee? Their muttering is marked by disagreement. So, verse 43 summarizes it nicely. So, there was a division among the people over him. Their muttering, it it highlights the division. There's a division. They're not united in what they think, they disagree on what they think about Jesus, and specifically over the meaning of his words and deeds what he says and does so next word marveling helps us see this feast feast, muttering marveling look at verse 14 about the middle of the feast jesus went up into the temple and began teaching the jews therefore marveled saying how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied now look at verse 21 jesus answered them i did one work and you all Marvel at it. The one work Jesus is referencing, this is back in chapter 5, when Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath. Uh, but notice, okay, the first marveling is at his teaching, his words. The second marveling is at his works, what he does. They marvel at his words and deeds. And it's his words and deeds that cause their division. So if you look at your Bibles, verse 31, some were trying to arrest him, yet many of the people believed in him, saying, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Or 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said one thing, others said another, and there was division. In the conclusion to our scene, the chief, the Pharisees, they're really mad at the temple officers because they didn't arrest Jesus. And the officers reply, verse 46, No one ever spoke like this man. And Nicodemus, trying to defend Jesus, asks, verse 51, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Words and deeds. Over and over again, marveling at his words and deeds. And the people become divided over. What does this all mean? What do his actions, what do his words, what do they mean about him? What do they say about Jesus' identity and origin? Which brings us to our fifth word. Fear, feast, muttering, marveling, where? Almost there, kids. The muttering is all about Jesus' identity and origin. Who is he and where is he from? This word actually comes up all over the passage. I almost structured the whole teaching around this one word, the important one in our passage. Now we can see that there's a variety of expectations when it came to the Messiah. Some expectations that no one would know where he came from. There were some expectations that he must be from Bethlehem as a son of David. Now, Jesus, in this passage, actually fulfills both of those things. Unlike the crowds, as readers know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, even though he later grew up in Nazareth, which is in Galilee. And if we look at verse 28, Jesus demonstrates that they, in fact, know where he's from. They think they know, but they don't know. Verse 28, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, you know where I come from, but I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and you do not know him. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Jesus says, You know, I grew up in Galilee, but that's only part of the story. Before that, where I'm from is heaven, from God's presence, from where I was sent. Now, this is where things in the passage get spicy, because at this point, Jesus takes their question and turns. The division is not just over where jesus is from jesus says that this division will determine where the people will go verse 33 i'm going to him who sent me jesus is on his way back to the father his plan of redemption is on he will go to the cross he'll make his return trip to the father who sent him there in the first place verse 34 you will seek me you will not find me where i am you cannot come the wording is confusing I want it to read you. Know, Where I am going, you cannot come. But it, John has weird grammar. Okay? But clearly, it confuses his listeners too because they imagine him going abroad. They're like, what? You're going to go to Greece? You're going to go to the dispersion? Go hang out with the Jews in, in, in the Greek speaking land? This point is quite startling when we get into it. Where I am, you cannot come. They cannot go with him back to the Father. He's saying this to the Jews, they will be excluded. Now he's going to use this kind of language later on with his disciples. Look at this, just quickly so you can see it. The weird grammar. Chapter 12, anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Chapter 14, if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Chapter 17, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory. Those that believe in Jesus will get to go and be with Him in the Father's presence. But the frightening alternative is that those who deny or oppose Jesus will be excluded. Doubt in the cold. Jesus is, is dropping the gauntlet. The division is seen in their muttering, but it has massive implications and consequences. Now, Before we get to Jesus' amazing invitation, we need to see one more layer of this question of where. The question of where, there's three layers. Where is Jesus from? Where is Jesus going? Where are the people going? But most importantly, where is God's presence found? Remember, the Feast of Tabernacles remembered and celebrated the gift of God's provision through the wandering in the wilderness. But the most profound gift during that time was God's very presence. He went and was among the camp, pillar of fire and and, and pillar of cloud, and, and he's in the tabernacle. God moved with the people in his own booth, called a tabernacle. And when they got to the land, then Solomon built him a temple, a permanent home where he lived. And this is now where they're standing and celebrating. God was with them in the tabernacle, his presence was with them in the temple. But after the exile, the glory. God which departs the temple it never comes back. God's presence never returns to the temple. Here now, the crowds don't realize that God's presence is in their midst in Jesus. See, they had the temple, but they didn't have the presence, but John chapter 1 verse 14, the word became flesh and tabernacled among them. God's presence was there in Jesus. Where was God? Right there in front of them, and they didn't see him but there's more god's presence will even closer but for that we need to get to our final word feast fear marveling where water this sermon brought to you by dwight true um, <laughs> this is the center of our passage the high point of the chapter the heart of what we want to get to this week jesus offers he offers us all satisfying overflowing presence of god he offers us the all-satisfying overflowing presence of god verse 37 on the last day of the feast jesus cried out if anyone thirsts let him come to me and drink if anyone thirsts now there's two possible ways to take this says the first is is more straightforward okay remember the scene They're in the desert, arid environment of Israel, late September, early October. After the long drought of summer, there hasn't been a good rain since the spring. Cisterns were low, springs and streams were becoming weak, the hills are barren and parched, the land itself was thirsty. Does that sound familiar? Their own drought, fire season approaching. Well, on the seventh day of the feast, the last day, that water ceremony that they did every morning, they do it seven times. Seven times. March down to the spring, the pitcher, march back up, pour it out, down, fill it up, come back, pour it out. Seven times, it's pouring out water all over the altar. Now think about being a bystander watching this. It's hot, it's dry, you've got to watch these guys, you know, in their robes and their pitchers and they're pouring out water and you're getting more and more thirsty. With every pitcher of water poured out, you're like, mm, I want some of that water. All of us would make it make any of us thirsty just watching it. I mean, I don't know if you've ever been really thirsty and you've gone to a park and seen like a, a water feature. There's a fountain there, and you're so thirsty. You're looking at the fountain. You're, you're th- considering, should I just put my face in the fountain and start drinking? And then you remember bird poop, and you don't. But but think about it. The crowds are made thirsty by the ceremony, which is laden with expectation, powerful imagery. Jesus stands up and says, "If anyone thirsts." anyone thirsts everyone is thirsty at that moment so that's one way to read this the second way of taking jesus words is more ironic it's possible that the jesus is, is is toying with them a little bit the people have feasted they have partied for a week now wine and water has flowed they're full the ground is stopping wet with the sevenfold pitcher pouring. They've had their fill of water and wine. They have drunk deeply of the good life for the last seven days. And Jesus says, is anyone thirsty? It's possible that he's asking, after all of that, is anyone still thirsty? Did the party satisfy? Did the celebration give you what it was supposed to? You've had all the good. This world can offer. Is anyone still thirsty? Come to me. Now, with either reading, like better, this is an invitation to life. It's profound, giving the context. It's provocative, giving the context. But Jesus is calling out to his thirsty hearers and inviting them to come and drink deeply of life. Are any of you thirsty? Maybe your life has made you thirsty. There's the raising kids, demands of job, complicated relationships with friends and family. You're feeling a little dry. Maybe you're toiling as you wrestle with particular sins. Or you're striving with efforts at self righteousness or human oriented religion, and you're drained. Maybe you've been working so hard to curate that Instagram life, and you are weary from pretending that life is effortless, and always picture-worthy. Is that you? Are you thirsty? On the flip side, maybe you've been trying to stake your, th- to slake your thirst with all kinds of things. Maybe your life looks more like the festival, and you're drinking and drinking and drinking. You know, you've tried Netflix, you've tried podcasts, you've tried mommy blogs, you've tried essential oils, or you went to the mall to treat yourself, or you went to the bar to forget yourself, or you compulsively exercised and diet to care for yourself, and you're drinking and drinking and drinking. Are you still thirsty? Kirsten and I had a friend who, who came to faith in her, like her 40s. And prior to coming to Christ, she and her husband were incredibly successful Incredibly wealthy. They had two smart, healthy kids who were becoming successes in their own right. They had it all. But but when she tells her story of coming to Christ, as she describes it, she says, imagine waking up one day looking in the mirror and realizing you have it all and it's not enough. What do you do in that moment? By the grace of God in her life, she came to Christ. Is anyone still thirsty? Jesus is crying out in our passage, if anyone thirsts, come to me and drink. Friends, our thirst can be satisfied by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus offers us the all-satisfying presence of God. But the good news doesn't stop there. John says this living water is the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. We asked, you know, where was God's presence? Where? His presence roamed with them in the temple. Excuse me, in the tabernacle. Lived with them in the temple. It was now with them in the person of Jesus. But it would soon go all the way inside through the Spirit. God's presence was going all the way in. Again, think of that passage of Ezekiel 47 where the river of living water flows from the temple. The temple is the location of God's presence. Now Jesus says, if you believe in me, that river out of you. If you believe in me, you will be a place where God's presence dwells and the river flows out. In Ezekiel's vision, you know, he, he sees the temple and he sees this water. He starts at the threshold. It's kind of trickling out and he says, go, go further out. So he walks a thousand steps and now it's ankle deep. And he walks a thousand more steps. And now it's knee deep. He walks a thousand more steps. Now he can swim in the river. The river is just abounding there's so much life, so much water flowing. And he looks and on, on either bank of the river, there are trees. It says their fruit will not fail. Their leaf will not wither. Their fruit is for food and the leaf, their leaves for healing. It's life. He envisions life flowing from God's presence, flowing from the temple. And Jesus standing in the temple, the people watching the water ceremony, maybe thinking of Ezekiel's vision, he says, believe in me, And you will have rivers of living water flowing out of you. Out of you. When you drink of Jesus and receive God's presence in you, you will be changed. God's presence will work its way out of you. The river will flow out of you. Jesus doesn't just offer to quench our thirst. He says, what I will give you overflows to others river will flow out. It's the all-satisfying, overflowing presence of God. So the New Testament talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Results that it produces in you, benefiting others. The New Testament talks about gifts of the Spirit. Profound ways that the Spirit works through you to bless others. But in both cases, the Spirit's work in your life will work its way out of you to those around you. So the last few weeks, as we, as we talked about walking with God and doing justice and loving kindness, these are not things that we strive after in our own strength, nor do we earn anything before God by pursuing them. No, but because God cares about justice and mercy, when he comes to reside in us, we can't help but to show signs of that life flowing out of us. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water it's so cool as Jesus is teaching John editorializes and says "But the spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet been glorified we're told that in John the hour of glory is the hour of the cross And that this spirit, this gift only comes, life only comes to us through the death of the Son. Stamped all over our passage is Christ's journey to the cross where his life will be given for us. The Feast of Tabernacles, it God's miraculous provision and presence. And here we have God tabernacling among us in Christ. And going to the cross to give himself for us, for our life. the people, they feared the Jews because they knew they were trying to arrest and kill Jesus, but Jesus wasn't afraid. He knew the road he was on and was in control of the timing, and he was marching all the way there. The spectacle of Christ crucified, it would cause many to marvel. And to this day, there are those that are still muttering, still on the fence about who he is, where he's from. But Jesus knew where he was going father but by way of the cross where he would thirst for us where his side would be pierced and water would flow for us where he would die in our place so that we could receive his life and be given his spirit the living water if anyone thirsts you must come to him and drink you must come to him and see him living for you. You must come to him and see him dying for you. You must come to him and receive his life. And if you drink, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. I don't know where you are this morning. <laughs> maybe, maybe you like the festival, the feast, the party, and you're still a little thirsty. Maybe you're afraid of the opponents of jesus you're afraid what that might mean for you you're you're lumped in with with folks that you're embarrassed to be lumped in with maybe you're 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 muttering you're divided over jesus with folks and you can't land on a place of, of who he is maybe maybe you marvel at all that jesus has done but you've yet to come and drink jesus lays it out for us he says where where, where will you end up? With me or not? The way there is by coming to him and drinking the living water. Let me pray.